millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe. And I'm Mirren Geddes. And each week we look at the big stories from the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. So this week did something a little bit different. We went and spoke to David Miliband. For those of you who don't know him, David was the UK's foreign secretary. He famously ran against his own brother, that's Ed Miliband, for the Labour leadership, and he lost. And it was all very messy. It was very Shakespearean with two brothers sort of stabbing each other in the back. And then David did something fairly surprising. He moved over to New York and became head of the International Rescue Committee, turning his back on mainstream politics. And so we just wanted to get his kind of insight, really, um, as someone who was a politician, now isn't on various political issues around the world. We spoke to him about Trump, obviously the big US story, and what that means, particularly for the refugee crisis and for uh, organisations like his. Um, We spoke to him about Brexit, um, in which he campaigned on the Remain side, and also in general about the kind of rise of nationalism and inward-looking politics around the world, and how progressive politicians like he was can respond to it. And of course, we got in that all-important question of, is he ever going to come back to politics in the UK? And to speak to him, Newsweek's Foreign Service went on the road. We headed down to the IRC's offices in Bloomsbury Square in London. Let's have a listen. I mean, the theme of the podcast, as we put it, is uh, the big stories from the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. And I guess the biggest story in the US recently was the election. Were you in New York for it? Yeah, I was in New York last Tuesday and Wednesday and obviously watched the election. It's a big event for last week, this week, next week and... For the future, and obviously it's got big implications both for the US and globally because the US is the anchor of the global system and when the US rebalances, it has implications for everyone. It must be in some ways, I suppose, strange for you as someone who was uh, a British politician now very much involved in American politics watching an American political event. How sort of part of the American political scene do you feel now? Well, I feel like an observer of the American political scene, yeah. not a participant. I'm not a citizen, so I can't vote in the election, and obviously it's a foreign country, so one is observing. It's not exactly like watching an episode of The West Wing, but it is, um, one certainly feels that one's watching it through a screen, because uh, it's uh, it's not my country. But obviously, it's the, the contours of the election, a, a remarkable election campaign, speak to some of the convulsions of global society in a very, very advanced form. You've known Hillary Clinton for a long time. I think both of you have expressed admiration for each other. So have you spoken to her since the election? No, I think that she did a speech, I think, this week, just yesterday, where um, she's come out, obviously, been, in her own words, an extremely painful 
a week of her life, week nine days, ten days of her life, and she said it's going to last for a long time. And certainly, uh, I presume that she went into the seven, eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the evening on Tuesday expecting good news, and so that makes it all the more, the, the bump down to earth is all the more shattering. But as she's shown in the last week, she's a very resilient person, uh, but nonetheless, um, there must be a very, very strong uh, sense of what's been lost. And there were always, as there are, rumours flying around before she was elected that, that maybe she might be looking to give you a position somewhere. Would you think that would have happened? I always said to people, whenever they uh, flatteringly or unflatteringly suggested <laughs> what I, whether, I, whether I might have a big job or be chief tea maker, what I always said was that uh, big jobs or tea making jobs don't go to foreign citizens and American government. Well, one of the rumours was that you could become head of the World Bank. The, the head of the World Bank has just been reappointed an outstanding leader of the world. Bank Jim Kim. He's just had the second five-year term renewed absolutely correctly. Uh, the head of the World Bank has always been an American. And so um, I think that it's been uh, a bit of titillating conversation, but not more than that. And as a foreigner in a, in a foreign country, how do you find New York as a place to live? It's an extraordinary place. It's an engine of people, money, ideas of an extraordinary kind. Uh, it's also the home of the International Rescue Committee. It was the home of Albert Einstein when he fled from Germany and when he created the organization. So one has a sense of standing on the shoulders of history. But it's also a place now that I live with my family. And so you see it different dimensions than if you're there for a weekend or for a week as a, as a visitor. And it's a community or a multiple of communities that has all of the upsides of globalization and quite a lot of the downsides as well. And you see that every day in a very stark form. That's interesting because in, in some ways people think of New York as somewhere that is very outward-looking, open-looking. What would be a sort of downside of globalisation? Well, the downsides of globalisation are inequality, instability, unsustainability. And you see that in New York all the time. You talked about the fact that you were an observer for this election. You've gone from being in the heart of government here over to you know, working for the IRC. How does that feel? Do you miss sort of being in the thick of it or is it kind of nicer to be impartial? I think it's different. If you're in government, you've got power, but you've also got big obstacles. If you're in an NGO, you've got less power, but you've got fewer obstacles. And that's the trade-off. I think that I feel I'm running a, a, a non-governmental organisation that's at the heart of some of the biggest challenges of globalisation in respect of the refugee crisis. Uh, we're working in war zones, in fragile states, on refugee transit routes, and we do refugee resettlement across the US. And so we are not the policy makers, but we're the policy takers. And we like to think that although we're policy takers, we're action makers. And we're action makers, you know, Eight of our hospitals have been bombed in Syria by the Syrian government and by the Russians this year. We can give witness and testimony to a real global crisis. And we're in a fight for media space in a way that you're not if you're in government. In government, there's permanent commentary on what you're doing on the stage. In, in an NGO, you're, you're lucky to get Newsweek to do a podcast. Uh, and so... I think it's a different kind of challenge, but we reached 23 million people last year. And so I feel that well, one can honestly say that we're making the world better one life at a time. And to talk a bit about 
what the IRC is doing. If we could just go back a little bit to, to the year 2014, which seemed like a fairly extraordinary year. People now are talking about 2016 as if it's this kind of uniquely destabilizing year. But in that year, you had a resurgent Russia, you had things going on in Syria, you had ISIS emerging in Iraq. What was it like to run the organization through that year? And how did you change what you did as a result and respond to the challenges? Well, I think that I joined the IRC in 2013. And I said, I wanted to take up the job for three reasons. First, that the issues at the intersection of humanitarian policy and foreign policy were some of the toughest intellectual and policy challenges that existed. Uh, secondly, that the IRC, the International Rescue Committee, was an organization that had the capacity to be an, a thought leader and an operational leader in the humanitarian space because it's one of the few organizations that works on crisis. We're, we're not an anti-poverty organization per se. We're a crisis, an organization div- divined by helping people whose lives are shattered by crisis. And thirdly, my parents were refugees, so I had a sense of closing a circle in um, working on these issues. And uh, my very strong view had become by 2014 that it wasn't only the scale of the refugee crisis that merited the word crisis. I think in 2014, there were 52 million refugees and displaced people. In 2015, uh, we're up to 65 million refugees and displaced people. Maybe the 52 million was the 2013 figure, and then it went to 59 million, and then to 65 million. But it wasn't just the scale that demanded the word crisis. It's also the fact the duration of displacement is now so long. Uh, The figures are contested, but uh, we can certainly say that displacement is now multi-generational, that less than 1% of the world's refugees went home last year. So you've got a rising tide and little sense of it receding. You've got the rise of armed opposition groups. You mentioned ISIS. They're not the only one. So increasing numbers of people who are displaced inside their own countries or across borders living under the influence of armed opposition groups. You've got an increasing urbanization of the displaced population. All these things challenge the humanitarian sector to change the way it does business. And so I very much saw it as my job to come to the IRC to applaud what was being done, but also to help modernize humanitarian practice for the kind of world that we're living in. But then how much more difficult has your work become with Europe putting up the borders? Because we are still seeing people on the run, being displaced, but they don't really seem to have anywhere to go. We've reverted to the pre-2014 situation or the pre-2015 situation in a way, which is that refugees and displaced people are basically staying in the regions that they are displaced from. So uh, the numbers are backed up in Turkey, 2.7 million refugees. They're backed up in Jordan and in Lebanon. Now, the, the European side of this is that Europe is still working through the million people who arrived in Europe in 2015. And so I think that... there's a dual challenge for Europe, really. One is to deal with the stock of people who have arrived, and secondly, to be an effective partner of the countries bearing the greatest share of the refugee-hosting load. And that's partly through aid policy, but we argue it's also through effective, albeit limited, refugee resettlement policy. We think it's right that the most vulnerable cases get the chance to come to Europe. Frankly, they should come to the US, they should come to Canada and elsewhere. Canada's stepped up in a good way. Uh, Because if you don't give people a legal route to hope, then they will take to illegal means. Now, the tragedy for displaced people and for Europeans is that it's not just east to the Middle East it needs to look. It needs to look south into Africa as well, because the route from North Africa, notably Libya, to Italy is also populated by desperate people fleeing from as far afield as Somalia and South Sudan, but also from Nigeria and Niger. 
And something that some of your fellow NGOs have been sort of critical of, more, I'm thinking more on the human rights side, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and so on, is what you've just touched on, this European approach moving towards a kind of partner system where you have uh, sending countries, as it were, working with them to keep refugees in those countries. There's been a lot of concerns raised about a slight overlooking of the human rights record of those countries. Do you share that concern? It's important to divide things up. I mean, aid money needs to be spent on tackling poverty. I mean, that's actually in European legislation. And it's important that if the European countries, the European Union, has wider policy aims for its engagement with Niger or Ethiopia or anywhere else, that doesn't corrupt or undermine the integrity of the aid uh, system. You've then got a second point, which is that Europe has a responsibility to engage with these countries on more than aid policy. And that those policies might be on tackling corruption, those policies might be on tackling the arms flow, those policies might be on migration as well. And that's legitimate, and elected and legitimate European politicians should do that. However, they should do it in accord with European values. And I think that that's important. So uh, across the piece, Europe needs to be clear about what policies are trying to achieve what goals and how they're consistent with... Europe's own values and approach. But you talk about European values. I mean, we've seen this very controversial deal with the EU and Turkey, where they're able to send refugees back to Turkey. And then there's now just been this decision that they can deport pretty much an unlimited number of Afghan migrants back to Afghanistan. I know you have to be diplomatic somewhat, but the way that Europe's dealing with its migrants does seem to be sending them back to the source countries, even though they're not safe. I mean, we know that parts of Afghanistan are just not safe. Well, it's not a question of being diplomatic, it's a question of being accurate. And what you said at the end is exactly right that we have 600 staff in Afghanistan, we work in nine of the 34 provinces in Afghanistan, and what you say, parts of the country are suffering from conflict, ongoing conflict. Uh, The so-called status determination system, which takes every individual case and tries to say, well, where are you from? Do you qualify as a refugee? Does need to get into the details of where they're from. And one of the important parts of my job is to try to say, look, the, the, the blanket view that you can either say, everyone from Afghanistan is in one category or everyone from Afghanistan is in another category doesn't actually accord with reality. And that makes the system more time-consuming, but it also does justice to the individual cases. And that's what I would say about there's got to be integrity to the process by which individuals are judged, but then the consequences have to be followed through. So if someone qualifies as a refugee, they have to be admitted as a refugee. If they, if, they're not, if they don't qualify and there's been integrity to the process, then they can't. But does it worry you that the EU does seem to be looking more to striking these deals with source countries and, you know, in return we see big aid packages being offered instead of trying to resettle and process them within Europe? Well, I think that resettlement, which I defend and advance, will never be the answer. With 25 million refugees around the world they're not all going to be transported into the richer countries. The resettlement option in the best case scenario is going to be the low single digit percentages of the total. We at the IRC have calculated that if you take the UN's estimates of the number in the most vulnerable category, Europe should be taking 540,000 refugees over the next five years. That means there's a hell of a lot of people who are not going to be qualifying to come to Europe. And that's why it's very important that Europe, but also America and other countries, have a dual approach, that you're addressing humanitarian need at source and you're addressing it on the refugee resettlement flow. And so I think it's not a matter of trading off refugee resettlement numbers for overseas aid numbers. You've got to do both. And one of the things I say about the UK, which has an exemplary record in terms of its spend 
on international development. It's nice to be able to be a Brit in America to say, look, here's something that British government, Labour and Tory are doing. 0.7% of national income goes on overseas aid. Britain doesn't have that exemplary record when it comes to the partner of that, which is the complement to it, which is the refugee resettlement numbers. Less than 100 refugees resettled in London in this year. So my argument to Europeans and to others would be you've got to do both. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And let's talk a little bit about the implications of the event we started this interview with, this surprise victory for Donald Trump. During the campaign, one of his key issues was immigration. And a lot of his publicity material was sort of critical of refugees, suggested they were a security threat and so on. As someone working for an American organization trying to help refugees, do you worry about a pivot away from those kinds of issues in the American government now that Trump is in control? Well, I think it's very important that American leadership on humanitarian policy and on refugee policy is maintained. I mean, America has more or less taken 40 to 50% of all those refugees resettled around the world historically, and we'll argue strongly that that should continue. I think that inevitably the question in everyone's mind is, does the rhetoric of the campaign translate into the policy of government? And the truth is we don't know yet. We don't know which people are going to be appointed to which jobs, and we don't know what policies are going to be enacted. And what we have to do is put at the service of effective policymaking our own experience of what's happening on the ground. And we can do that within the unusual position of being able to say, this is what's happening in the war zones, this was what's happening in the fragile states, and this is, here are the refugees, come and meet them. You can see that they are victims of terror, not terrorists. You can see the vetting system that already exists in the US, 12 to 18 months of vetting. And we just have to do that in a very professional way. But Donald Trump has intimated that he will stop the Syrian resettlement program. He's also said that he's not really interested in funding the moderate rebels in Syria, as the US you know, usually have. And people have said that that would sort of allow Russia to do what it's doing. And that in turn could lead to more refugees leaving Syria. So Donald Trump as a president seems like someone who's going to make possibly the IRC's job a lot harder. Is that a fair comment to make? Well, I think that the job has got harder in the last period, but it's not my job to say it's all the current president's fault. 
And so I think that uh, we're living at a time of a real paradox because essentially wars between states are more and more rare, but civil wars seem to be more and more virulent. And that's a very unusual state. That's what's driving the refugee numbers. I mean, the whole refugee system was designed for wars between states, but there aren't really any at the moment. But there are a record number of refugees because of the collapse of power within states like South Sudan and Somalia and because of the abuse of power in places like Syria. And those are clearly endogenous factors. Those are factors that are coming from within those societies. But they're also affected by global policy. Russia, America, the case that you refer to. The truth is, we don't know what the consequence of a new Russian-American reset or uh, cooperation is going to be. Obviously, we will make the case that the, the effort into peacemaking and peace-building, sometimes pejoratively referred to as nation-building, is absolutely vital. Because I can talk as much as I like about humanitarian aid, I can talk about refugee resettlement, unless we do a better job as a global community at preventing wars and stopping civil wars, then we're always going to be trying to run up a downward escalator. But surely a policy from the American government that does not have refugees high up the priority list will inevitably lead to a worse situation for the world's refugees. Well, obviously. I mean, if America's a big donor to the UN, America's a big bilateral aid donor, even though it's only 0.21% of national income, America's an important country and it's a big economy. Uh, so 0.21% of American GDP is uh, a lot. Uh, and we make the case that an outward-looking America and a globally engaged America is absolutely vital. And we obviously hope that the new administration bears that in mind as it formulates its policy and chooses its personnel. Do you have concerns about the Trump presidency? I know he hasn't been inaugurated yet, but as an organisation, are you worried about how it will affect you? What I would say is that the convulsions of global politics in America, there's Brexit in the UK, there's all sorts of challenge in uh, Europe, that... Whatever those convulsions, our job is to protect some of the most vulnerable people in the world from the convulsions of politics becoming a calamity for them. And part of our challenge is that the rising numbers of refugees and displaced people allows for them to be dehumanised. And what we have to say, someone said to me yesterday, look, these people in Syria, they are dentists and accountants and physical trainers. Don't just lump them all together as refugees. They are people like you and me. And we've got to remind policymakers that they don't just have legal obligations to these people or moral obligations, they also have a strategic responsibility to lead the global system. And the hard-won gains for refugees and displaced people after the Second World War need to be defended. And on Brexit, you were someone who campaigned uh, for Remain. When that result came in, did that make you sort of almost wish you were, you were back here fighting the, the campaign on the other side? <laughs> I think it made a lot, made a lot of people... Um, I mean, a lot of people had the opposite uh, reaction. <laughs> I think that... The real truth about my reaction was about concern for the future of Britain, because I thought at the time, and I still fear, that Brexit is a real arrow at the heart of some important British strengths, and we now have to make the best of it. And we need a better Brexit. I mean, people talk about hard Brexit and soft Brexit, and actually we need a better Brexit, or the best possible Brexit. Uh, And what do you mean by that? Well, because geography is not changed by withdrawal from the European Union. The interdependence between Britain and Europe is not changed. Economic, social, cultural 
not changed, intelligence cooperation not changed by the Brexit result. And so from my point of view, uh, the, the best kind of Brexit is one which ensures a maximum degree of cooperation on areas of vital national and international interest because I think that cooperation around Europe makes Britain and Europe and to some extent the wider world stronger. And in Britain, you were part of a government which, um, under Blair and Brown, as an advisor and then as a politician, the accusation is sometimes that it didn't take people's concerns on immigration particularly seriously. And also, yourself being one example, took advisors, placed them in safe seats. All of these other areas in which sometimes the accusation is that that new Labour government didn't listen to the concerns of ordinary people, and that was part of what drove the Brexit vote. Do you, uh, do, you, do you think you'd have done anything differently if you'd looked at what came out of Brexit and could go back in time to the, the Blair or Brown years? Yeah, I think everyone, I mean, look, the, the, everybody, I think, has, has said that a transitional scheme for the entry of the so-called A8, which is the eight countries who entered the European Union in 2004, um, everyone says in, in retrospect that a transitional scheme would have been sensible. But I do remind people that the, the, the Conservatives fought the 2005 election almost predominantly on immigration. And so the idea that it wasn't talked about is a complete fantasy. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about immigration. I think it's important that decisions can be wrong without being the result of, quote-unquote, not listening. We've seen, you know, with Brexit and with the rise of Trump, this growing nationalism, this idea to look inwards rather than outwards. As a former left-wing politician and as someone who's part of, very much part of the international community, what can the international community do to sort of combat this nationalism and try and get people to be more open and inclusive? I think that the most effective thing to do is to work properly. So, the need for reform of the international system seems to me a, to be essential to build confidence in the international system. In the own area that I work in, the humanitarian aid sector needs to become, I would say, more outcome-oriented, more evidence-based, uh, more strategic in the way it operates. For example, you know, what does strategic mean? It means recognizing that at a time when displaced people are displaced for a long time, the answer for them has got to be a humanitarian system that is economic as well as social. It's got to be about employment as well as healthcare. And that means creating a deal with the hosting countries that makes it worth their while for refugees to be employed in countries like Jordan or Lebanon or Kenya to really um, ensure that the pressure in those countries is tolerable and dealt with in an appropriate Way. So I, I would argue that we've got to make globalization work in a fairer, more sustainable, more stable way if we are to maintain confidence in the process of globalization itself and avoid the perils of deglobalization, which are real. And would you ever step back into mainstream politics to fight that fight yourself? I, I'm very focused on what I'm doing at the moment, which is I'm running a large NGO. I've been doing it for three years. I think that we are gaining speed and gaining momentum. I mean, we're first time in three years we've broken through to the Newsweek podcast. <laughs> so you can tell that we're it's all we're, 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 we're on the rise in a we've we've finally reached your broken through your attention uh, barrier to oh, come uh, on you always reach, get on our radar <laughs> reach these dizzy heights. So um, I, I feel very focused on that, and I, I'm very conscious that a lot of people who depend on us, uh, require that the organization maintains confidence at a challenging time because all sorts of questions are being asked about whether or not the traditional mainstays of the global humanitarian system are going to stay the course. And it's very important that they do. And I think that that's where I can make most difference and that's what I'm focused on.
So that was us in conversation with David Miliband. Just a reminder that you can catch us every week on SoundCloud, on iTunes and on Acast. Don't forget to like us, subscribe to us, rate us. And if you can't wait until next week's episode, you can visit us at newsweek.com or pick up a copy of Newsweek. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.